Welcome to the Truth to Power podcast from Churches Together in Britain and Ireland. These recordings were originally streamed as live webinars where we brought together key people from across the church and society to discuss significant contemporary issues. This episode explores how the COVID-19 crisis is impacting the lives of refugees and people seeking asylum in Britain and Ireland. It was hosted by CTBI's Church's Refugee Network. A very warm welcome to everyone this, uh, this evening to this webinar. I am Bishop John Perimbalas. I chair churches together uh, in Britain and Ireland's Churches Refugee Network. We have been running these webinars as planned, and this is the second webinar of the three that we have. Two weeks ago, we focused on the refugee situation in Europe, in the particular COVID-19 uh, pandemic context. And tonight we focus on the refugee situation in United Kingdom and Ireland and the impact of COVID-19. <coughs> and the next one will be on 15th of July at 7 p.m. And we shall be focusing on the policies and matters related to refugee support in United Kingdom and Ireland. As we begin, I just want to offer a prayer. God of justice, peace, and compassion. God of small actions that we do not often see, and the soft voice that we do not often hear. Justice is hard to define and harder to apply, but love lived out in public is never out of reach. Help us all to welcome the instinct in ourselves to do the right thing in the moment we are in. We pray in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I just want to hand over to Pereda Griffiths. We normally call him Pred. Uh, Pred represents the churches in Wales on the steering group of Church's Refugee Network. In 2015, he joined Christian Aid as the Regional Coordinator for South Wales and Legacy Officer for Wales. So over to Fred. Well, good evening, everybody. And thank you very much, uh, Bishop John. Um, this is a, a one-hour uh, webinar, and it's the second of three. Um, and we're hosted here kindly by Churches Together in Britain and Ireland uh, through the Churches Refugee Network. Uh, tonight we're going to be exploring uh, the refugee and asylum matters in Britain and Ireland and how the COVID-19 crisis has affected that, uh, th th that issue. Uh, my, name, my name's Pered Roy Griffiths, uh, or, or Pred for short, uh, and I'm responsible for Faith, Order and Witness at Katine as uh, Churches Together in Wales. Uh, I'm joined here this evening uh, by uh, Erica Williams. Uh, she's from the Wales Strategic Migration Partnership. Uh, Emma Wilson, 
an advisor, advice worker at St. Rolex's Church of Scotland Community Outreach Project. Um, Sarah Teva from uh, the Director of Jesuit Refugee Services in, uh, in England and David Moriarty, uh, the Assistant Director of the Jesuit Refugee Service in Ireland. So we'll be uh, listening to, to the four speakers speaking for about 10 minutes each and then uh, we'll go into a, a question and answer session afterwards. Um, as we're speaking this evening and as the, the speakers are, are, are presenting, please do feel free to uh, pop your questions into the Q&A uh, box available. We'll try our best to answer the questions, uh, but we are limited on time, so we'll do our best to, to, to answer as many as we possibly can. Um, and, um, but we do apologize, obviously, if, if we can't. Um, so, as I said, this is the second of, of three sessions. Um, we're going to go first this evening to, uh, to Erica uh, from the Wales Strategic Migration Partnership, and she's going to give um, us a, a view from, from Wales. So I'll hand over to Erica now for about 10 minutes, and uh, we'll listen intently to what she has to say, and then we'll go on to Emma after that. But over to you, Erica. Thank you very much, Fred. Um, well, first of all, I want to thank you very much for the invitation to speak this evening. Um, and I also kind of need to apologise. I almost feel you've been shortchanged. It should have been the manager of the Wales Strategic Migration Partnership, Anne Hubbard, who spoke to you. Um, and she does apologise sincerely that she hasn't been able to make it tonight. Um, and I'm hoping I don't have to apologise too much that you have me instead. But I do know that Anne has, for those of you who might know her, she has a wealth of experience and knowledge. And I do feel rather like a very poor reserve. But however, she did leave me her prepared notes and they are what I'm going to use. So hopefully I will succeed in delivering what she had planned to share with you. Um, and I'll begin by outlining the role of the WSMP, the Wales Strategic Migration Partnership. It's a mouthful. Um, we're a partnership of Wales-based organisations um, that, that, um, that develop a strategic approach to migration in Wales. We also oversee asylum dispersal, the arrival of unaccompanied asylum-seeking children and refugee resettlement across Wales and some work on wider migration, for example, with EU migrants, especially at the moment. Now, my role within that partnership is as ESOL coordinator, English for speakers of other languages. And my role exists as a result of the UK resettlement schemes and my work is to support local authorities to provide ESOL to their resettled families and to help with issues around integration and employment. During COVID, however, one of our key roles for all of us in the team has been to convene multi-agency meetings with a wide variety of partners in order to support the response to the COVID crisis and to ensure that vulnerable asylum seekers, refugees and migrants were and are able to self-isolate and access support and most importantly I think are able to understand the issued guidance. Now 
Despite the disproportionate impact of coronavirus on black, Asian and minority ethnic residents in Wales, little is actually known about how different communities may be coping with the lockdown restrictions and how their well-being might be impacted during this difficult time. So thank you for the opportunity to join the discussion tonight. I'm going to give some perspectives from our engagement with the issues and that of the organisations that we work with, including the International Organisation for Migration, the IOM, and the Helen Bamba Foundation. They provide trauma counselling for asylum seekers. Um, they're a specialist clinical charity which works with survivors of torture, human trafficking and extreme human cruelty. The Helen Bamber Foundation shared with us their view on, with some trusted partners on the impact of COVID on their clients. So the foundation had done some work around whether self-isolation was and is proving especially difficult for asylum seekers and refugees in comparison with the UK population as a whole. This work was done relatively early in the lockdown scenario. And the notes that came, that the information is based on, came from sessions with 275 clients. What they found was that the majority of their clients were adhering strictly to government recommendations regarding self-isolation. Indeed, they found that many clients were so anxious and fearful about the situation that they refused to leave their accommodation and were already suffering from the mental health and practical consequences of extreme isolation. They have very few clients who, due to a lack of mental capacity and or limited language skills, do not understand the restrictions being imposed. They said that some of their clients are in extremely inappropriate accommodation for people with their background experience of trauma. This includes individuals who are in accommodation, sometimes even sharing a room with others, with people who they don't know and fear catching COVID-19 from their roommates or from their housemates. It's also worth perhaps mentioning the type of accommodation. Some people are in initial or contingency accommodation as it's called, and there can be over 100 people held in a single building. People in this type of accommodation may not be able to social distance effectively, let alone self-isolate if needed, and therefore may not see the logic of self-isolating when they go outside together. A lot of the conversations that we had and the discussions in our multi-agency COVID calls were around these issues of room sharing and self-isolation. Many clients, and this is back to the Helen Bamba Foundation, um, research, spoke of their distress at not being able to social distance or self-isolate satisfactorily. Even if they have their own bedroom, they're likely to be sharing bathrooms and kitchens with others that they don't know. Some of our clients are having to make the best decisions they can about where they are safest from being infected with or spreading COVID-19. Prior to the pandemic, many of these clients were able to maintain some degree of mental and physical stability by staying outside their accommodation for long periods of time, often throughout the day and sometimes even during the night. 
Some of these clients are, of course, now able to extend the time they are outside their accommodation beyond one hour in order to avoid conflicts in their accommodation and a further breakdown in their own mental health. It may, however, be that when the Metropolitan Police come across individual asylum seekers or refugees, that they have problems with communication, leading to a view that this population is behaving in a different way. The lack of language, the lack of being able to understand and to make yourself understood can lead to, to complications and huge misunderstandings. The evidence of the Helen Bamber Foundation does not support this view. They're concerned that if this view, which represents a degree of racial stereotyping, becomes embedded in police strategy, it may well make the matters worse. The foundation highlighted that asylum seekers who are provided with accommodation and or financial support by the Home Office do not have the ability to shop online as so many of us were encouraged to do during uh, the initial lockdown and therefore they cannot buy food and other essentials easily. The financial support an asylum seeker receives is either £35.39 £39, or £37.75 £35 a week, depending on the stage of their asylum claim. And therefore, they're just not able to buy in bulk in order to limit their journeys outside their accommodation in order to buy essentials. They've basically just got money to buy hand-to-mouth. It is a fact that a few clients in accommodation provided by the Home Office have access to the internet due to the lack of Wi-Fi in the accommodation and most importantly an inability to afford to purchase mobile data within their very limited amount of financial support. So very few clients actually have um, access to the internet and they're therefore feeling further isolated by their lack of access to the internet and the services which are now operating remotely online. They can't get to the services they need. They can't find the information they want because they can't get online. Um, and finally, the foundation had highlighted that survivors of human rights violations often have underlying health conditions and vulnerabilities that put them specifically at risk of developing serious forms of COVID-19. The overwhelming majority of clients suffer from trauma symptoms and many have a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. The foundation have evidence that post-traumatic stress disorder can suppress the immune system and render individuals more vulnerable to illness. Connected to this issue, conditions such as depression, which can be closely linked to trauma symptoms, can impact on self-care. Furthermore, the changes in the way healthcare is accessed at present, telephone, video consultations, internet-based services, all requiring a certain amount of confidence and ability in the English language, have increased clients' difficulty in accessing medical care, meaning that clients are struggling to access their normal services, such as repeat prescriptions or mental health care. They're also likely to present late to the health services if they develop COVID-19 
related symptoms. Early presentation to healthcare can result in better outcomes for those developing serious COVID-19 related illness. So this increases the risks to the public as well as individuals. The work of the Foundation echoes the views we hear from agencies on a daily basis. Although it has to be said that asylum seekers and refugees also have enormous resilience and have been proactive in supporting other members of their community and in their responses to COVID. It's important to note that the Foundation concluded that the responses of their clients broadly reflects the range of responses to the COVID-19 crisis seen in the UK population as a whole. They're not a population apart. What they feel, what they um, have to go through is very similar to what a lot of the UK population is, is going through. So despite the challenges outlined in this important work on the impact of COVID on people with PTSD, there are other more positive perspectives, as I just mentioned. And one of the aspects of the COVID pandemic has been the way in which communities have responded. And as I mentioned earlier, there are many examples of migrant community direct action. Support provided by various migrant communities across the board has been incredible. For example, many black, Asian and minority ethnic medics have taken to social media, sharing their knowledge and experience and importantly, countering misinformation that is prevalent in many communities. Here are some examples of rumours around COVID-19. Um, the rumour that the virus is part of a biological war that it's God's revenge against those who drink alcohol, that it's God's will, that your skin colour protects you from COVID, that we survived worse things and don't need to worry about this tiny virus. Communities don't want to burden the NHS. I don't want to be perceived as jumping the queue ahead of British people. And the view is that quite often they won't come out of hospital alive, a view that was um, exacerbated by a lot of false news on social media, a lot of, you know, stay out of hospital, you won't come out, out of there alive. And, and on all of those rumours, possibly to us sound a bit ridiculous, but just imagine being self-isolated, imagine not having money, not having internet access, all of that can seem very real and, and can add to the the isolation and, and the mental ill health. Uh, Erica, um, we're, yeah. we're coming coming to the end of the, of the 10 minutes. Do you, do you want to wrap up in a sentence? Uh, yes, lovely. I think my sentence to wrap up would be a little example of positive um, action here in Wales itself. Um, I know that in Swansea and Powys, Syrian refugees who were experienced tailors before they had to flee the conflict, have been able to, um, well, beg and borrow, I heard, sewing machines and have been making scrubs for NHS workers. And I also know um, that a group of Syrians, Iraqis and Palestinians in Aberdeenshire have been doing similar, as no doubt of many others. Um, and there are also, um, in Aberystwyth, there's the Syrian Dinner Project, who actually cooked at least 150 meals for NHS staff at Bronglais Hospital as a way of giving back to the community and saying thank you. So I do feel that a lot of what I was telling you was based on um, trauma and difficulties and 
all of that is true and all of that exists but there, there is a population among our refugees and asylum seekers who have great resilience um, and a great desire to be part of our communities and to give something back. Lovely. Thank you very much, Diolch uh, and thank you for, for bringing us a, a view there from, from Wales. And I'm sure we can go into a lot more of this detail in the, in the Q&A as well. Um, I'd like to now um, uh, introduce Emma Wilson, uh, the advice worker at uh, St Rolex's Church of Scotland Community Outreach Project. And uh, we'll hear now from, uh, from Emma. Uh, over to you, Emma. Okay, thank you. Um, much like Erica, um, but possibly even further down the league table of people that should have been sharing with you tonight. But I'm, um, I'm very pleased to be able to do so and to, to give a bit of a perspective as to what's been happening in Scotland. Um, I think we, we can't really go um, very far without addressing the very sad events in Glasgow on Friday. Um, when it appears that, that one of our young asylum seekers, um, uh, for whatever reason, has attacked other people within his accommodation and ultimately led to, to losing his own life um, and with six people um, still in hospital as well. The, um, I'm not sure how much attention the, has been given um, since the events, but what had happened is that the Mears group who took over the accommodation contract um, in September and were really still in the kind of initial period of that contract. Um, that was the, the, the initial kind of warm up period was due to come to an end in April. Um, at the very start of lockdown, they moved um, around 400 people into hotel accommodation from what was mostly initial accommodation. Um, so not the dispersal accommodation for the most part, but mostly initial accommodation. Moved them all into hotels. Um, the reasons for it, not quite clear. Looking at, in the most positive regard, it may have been that they felt it was easier to, to look after people in one or two um, locations, but it led to significant problems in terms of people's mental health. Um, we had previously also had uh, the suicide of a, of a young Syrian in similar accommodation a few weeks before. One of the major complaints is that because it was catered accommodation, um, everyone that was moved in there lost their cash support. So effectively, they were trapped inside the accommodation. They had no money with which to go out um, and purchase anything themselves, no money with which to travel, no money essentially to purchase um, mobile phone top-ups, and, and that meant that they had no ability to contact lawyers, to contact others, uh, their family members abroad, and, and perhaps other community support that they might already have had in Glasgow. And that seems to have really been um, the largest part of the complaints about the way that this was handled. It also led to um, a great deal of difficulty in the social distancing, much like Erica has spoken of in the initial accommodation. People were, stuck in the hotel. Hotels, even if they're decent hotels, are not meant to accommodate people all day long. People usually stay there, have their breakfast and go out during the day. So folks were crammed in. There was talk also of, of pregnant ladies being uh, accommodated on floors where it was all young single men, um, some of whom, some of these ladies have probably been victims of, of quite serious trauma and, and possibly sexual violence as well. So inappropriate from that point of view. 
a number of complaints about the quality of being provided and um, I think there were some issues with the provision of food during Ramadan as well. Um, we wait to see, hopefully there will be a, an inquiry um, as to why that decision was made and um, an inquiry separate from just the police investigation. Mayors obviously immediately had to move the folks out of that particular hotel. Um, most were moved into other hotels, but they had already started the process also of, of moving people into um, their dispersal accommodation. I think if, if we can look at any bright side uh, with what happened on Friday, it has been to see the huge support and out the, the, the expression of, of welcome and of concern of, and of care from the wider population in Glasgow. Um, possibly not what we saw reflected in some of the social media comments on the news reports, but the actual practical outpouring of care um, meant that um, one of the support agencies actually had to say, please stop bringing us clothes because we can't keep any more. We've, we've been overwhelmed with the donations and having spoken to a number of folks from the Sudanese community that we were particularly concerned about because it was someone from their country, um, they have said that they have felt very supportive. They have had many people checking on them. They've had many people making them feel extra welcome. Um, and so if we can take anything positive from it, I think it is, it is that, that people have been supported and have been cared for um, in the aftermath of all of that. In terms of the other things that we've been seeing, um, I think a lot of it will be similar to, to what Erica has already said. Um, for ourselves at St Rolex, we provide a specialist um, welfare rights service, particularly for refugees who are trying to access benefits and employment and, and all of the, the, the technical things that, that can go with that. We have seen um, a huge amount of hardship for families who are subject to the benefit cap and in particular have seen that all of the easements that were put in place um, with regard to the uprating of universal credit um, and some of the other uh, additional help has not helped those families at all because the cap means that they can't have that. Um, perhaps more worryingly at a time whenever they have all of their children at home all day and, and need to feed them. Um, the additional support provided by the council I think was very much aimed at the local population. The farm food vouchers that were given to cover the cost of school meals um, are not really, it's not really a shop that, that our refugee folks would use very often. So they've struggled even to make use of that. And despite the fact that there's to be a hold on any eviction proceedings um, during the pandemic, we have seen even some of the social landlords moving in to seize um, money for arrears of rent for folks who are literally having to choose between paying their rent or eating. Um, and they have, some even of the social landlords have moved in to, to start to, to take an, an alternative payment arrangement from Universal Credit and, and to take some of that money back. So that has necessitated quite a lot of intervention um, from the likes of ourselves, <clears throat> from the Refugee Council and undoubtedly from, from other agencies that are involved. Um, Yes, we um, particularly aware then as well of the, the lack of the, um, the inadequacy of the asylum support. Um, I think at one stage we were looking at a bottle of hand sanitizer, the tiniest bottle, 25 mils costing over five pounds, which was a huge amount to be taking out of your 35 pounds a week 
we and, and a number of other agencies have been fortunate enough to secure additional funding um, in order to provide direct um, financial support to some of the folks who have been particularly badly affected. I think it is worth saying as well that a lot of the support that was put in place in local areas um, for people to access help with getting medicine, for help with delivery of food, um, if they were self-isolating and so forth, hasn't been that easy for our asylum seekers and refugees to access. Um, a lot of that information has been on social media. It has been um, through word of mouth, through the connections that people have. And if they're quite new to an area, that has been quite hard for them to navigate. Some of the more familiar food banks and so forth had shut because they relied on volunteers, many of whom are in their 70s and who were in the, the, the group most at risk. So we've had a number of queries as to where is this help? How can I get this help? It also felt like um, Glasgow became a very sort of localized support area. So um, if you were in a particular sort of parish area, there would be support there. But if you're not that integrated into that community and you look to the wider refugee community or the wider city community to provide support, it was more difficult for people to access. Um, we also found the same difficulties as Erica mentioned with people being very susceptible to rumour um, and to messages that just weren't terribly clear. I think we have all struggled um, to know exactly what we're allowed to do from week to week. And for the refugees, that has been particularly confusing. Right at the start of lockdown, I had a call from a lady who was very distressed because her son was showing symptoms possibly of the virus. He has an underlying breathing condition. And she had been told by somebody that if she rang an ambulance and it sounded like coronavirus, the ambulance just wouldn't come. So she was on the phone to me in tears saying, what do I do? Because they say the ambulance won't come if it sounds like corona and I'm really worried about my son. So some of these messages that, that we sort of think these rumors that can be silly, but had a huge um, detrimental effect on the stress levels that people were living with. And again, because people weren't sure about what they were allowed to do, we found many families who were simply staying inside nearly all of the time. Um, children who hadn't been out of the house at all um, because the family didn't know that it was okay to go for a walk in the park. I think underlying all of this, the, we have heard in, in just the last couple of weeks, really people's sense of frustration and isolation now really coming through. <clears throat> people are just really desiring to be back into their English classes, into the places where they call in for a cup of tea and coffee, they are really feeling that, that isolation and the detrimental effect upon their mental health. Um, Thank you very much. It's, I, I, I think we're up to about, about, about 10 minutes, unless you've got something else that you need to say now, what we'll do is uh, we'll come back to some of your points, obviously in the question and answer session and uh, we've started having uh, a couple of questions come through but i'd encourage people to type in their questions as uh, as we're listening to um our speakers now our third speaker is uh, sarah uh, tether um, and she's uh, the director at uh, jesuit refugee services in england uh, i'm going to pass over to to her now and uh, it's over to you sarah Thank you. Thanks very much, Pred. Um, the JRS UK um, works specifically with asylum seekers who are made destitute by the system and those in immigration detention. And as a lot of the comments from 
Erica and Emma have focused on people at different stages in the asylum process or on refugees with status. I'm going to focus more on the situation affecting the people who we support, which who I really think needs it needs it needs to be heard. Um, I mean, they, they faced a really bad situation since the start of the, the, the pandemic. Um, people who are destitute, um, I mean, I'm sure everybody who's listening who um, works in, the, in similar organizations will be aware of the, of, of the problems, but I mean, they're banned from working, they're not in receipt of any financial support. Most people are circulating around multiple different addresses. Um, in order to keep a roof over their heads. They're often very vulnerable to exploitation. Um, uh, they, if they find that, that the friend who they thought was going to house them that night doesn't house them, then they end up on the night bus that night. Um, they spend their days in day centers or in public libraries. So when lockdown happens, it was just a crisis um, because they're completely dependent on charities to provide them with basic um, cash, cash for just to meet their basic needs for food, um, for hot meals. They spend their days somewhere warm, like a day center or a public library. And of course, they're all, they were all closed. They couldn't so, um, surf around night buses in order to keep safe. So homelessness levels rocketed um, at the start of the pandemic. Um, and we found that the people who we were supporting were just facing a crisis to survive. They were hungry. I mean, really hungry. I've never, I've never met that scale of crisis amongst the people that we support so quickly. Um, we're accustomed to people dipping in and out of crisis, having periods of, um, you know, when everything is extremely difficult, when accommodation breaks down, but it'll be a few at a time, but almost everybody went into crisis very, very quickly. So that was, um, it was a very difficult situation and we found we were, listening to people who were on the edge of despair. Um, so, I mean, for those who were managing to remain in accommodation with friends or acquaintances, many of those people were also people who perhaps experienced detention or torture in their own country. And we saw um, a kind of de a real deterioration in mental health for a lot of people. It reignited trauma. It was really, it was very, very difficult. Um, uh, I mean, there were some positive changes from the government. It's, um, it's interesting things that they said they could never do, they were able to do. Um, uh, if only they would stick to it. Um, so reporting that was thought to be absolutely essential was eventually suspended. Um, but it was, it was a total muddle. I mean, nobody communicated with asylum seekers themselves about what was happening. And it was very difficult to get clarity on what the government policy was. Um, but eventually it was suspended. Um, the need to travel in person to Liverpool to make further submissions or put in a fresh claim, even if you're destitute, which of course is ridiculous and a deliberate barrier, um, that was eventually suspended. I mean, there's a bit of hope that won't be um, reintroduced. Um, and for the first time in many, many years, levels in, of people being held in immigration detention are at an all-time low. There's only something like 300 people, I think, um, in detention um, at the moment. Um, as opposed to what's usually about 3,000. So those people who are in immigration detention have faced really difficult situation. Um, um, they, what we've, we've heard from people that we have been supporting is that um, COVID has gone through the centre, um, there's been a huge amount of fear and self-harm has been very, very high. Um, 
There were also some changes to Section 4 rules, which meant that people who we support who would not previously be eligible for Section 4 accommodation became eligible for Section 4 accommodation. Though it was often a very, very poor quality. So we have people who picked up COVID in the Section 4 accommodation. They're in shared rooms, overcrowded accommodation, and it whipped through the hostel. And at least one of the people we were supporting ended up in hospital. Um, and then there was another um, a scheme to try and um, tackle homelessness that was called Everyone In. Um, and um, and uh, overnight, people who they said they would never, ever be able to house were actually taken into into hotels. It was a bit chaotic, honestly. Um, people didn't always know where they were going. It wasn't explained to people. There was frequently no food um, provided for people in the hotel. So, I mean, I heard the, what Emma was describing about um, full board were actually a slightly different situation. And people were taken into hotels, but there was no food. I mean, how they were supposed to get food, considering they were still destitute, is beyond me. Um, uh, but yeah, so they um, they were just provided basically with a with a roof. Um, but all of that seems to be now coming to an end, and um, people are being given notice that they need to leave. And at the moment, it looks as though people who are NRPF, whether that's um, people who we don't support who have NRPF attached to their visa, or, or the people who we do support who are um, those with an insecure immigration status, look as though they're not going to be included in the next phase of the homelessness strategy. Um, so for us as, a, as an organisation at JRS, it's been, a, it's been a bit of a scramble really to try and support people. And we, we normally support people through a day centre drop-in and we turned our day centre inside out um, and have been taking food parcels onto the road, which is very difficult when people are still actually moving around addresses. So it's very labour intensive and we work across London, which is actually a very wide geographical area. So we're trying to get food parcels and toiletries, which include just stuff to wash your hands with, um, across a very wide area. Um, we rolled out a new scheme to um, make sure we could get cash payments because it was money that people were absolutely desperate for. Um, so we've rolled out a prepaid MasterCard so we can get people some um, some basic help and we can top that up remotely which means if we go back into another phase of lockdown we've at least got some means of getting some support to people um, and gradually as we just the bit, bit of basic help people have wanted really to engage with activities we used to provide a very active activity program along with other organizations um, and loneliness was a was a, um, a theme that was picked up by both Erica and and Emma in their in their talks and isolation is, is a real problem for people um, I mean, we've 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 responded by um, an, a new scheme of, of connecting people with volunteers to provide proactive emotional support but really what people want is to get together with other people they want peer support they want to be in touch with friends and of course that's very very difficult and um, digital poverty is a particular issue so whether it's lack of smartphones or data um, and we, we, we've been able to respond to that in some way and a number of other organisations are doing similar. I'm, I'm aware of people giving out dongles and smartphones. So there's a, there's a kind of patchwork of different organisations trying to respond to that. Um, but it, it's, it's, an, it's an enormous challenge to try and um, recreate a sense of community and a space for friendship that's natural when you're working like this. Um, uh, and you've got people who have 
really very limited access to, to data. I wanted to just say something else though about kind of cross organizational working because that's been one of the striking things for me um, uh, at JRS UK is that there's, there's actually more cross organizational working um, particularly with other organizations serving people who are destitute um, but also um, lots of small organizations frontline organizations I mean it's, it's, it's actually a real positive I've never known that be quite so fruitful um, and we've been able to make an, one new partnership with Age UK where we've connected some of our most isolated refugees with isolated elderly people in sheltered accommodation and people are exchanging gift cards. I mean, our, our, um, the people who we're supporting, uh, our refugee friends are making cards though, through the creative arts group um, and exchanging that. And it's just, it's just something about trying to give people back some agency and to enable people to do what they would normally do, which is actually to support other people that, I mean, that nobody wants just to be in receipt of charity. And that's the particular difficulty I think about a pandemic is that you, you people who are already struggling are made even more passive. And actually what most people want to do is to be able to, um, to have agency, to be able to care for others, to be able to act. Um, so we've been trying to find ways to do that. And we found other people, other organizations supporting isolated people quite keen actually to reach out. And I, I hope that's some of the more, the more fruitful things. Um, but there's going to be incredibly difficult times ahead. I mean, with the, the shift in with, in terms of homelessness around um, evictions from hotels, the, the review of Section 4 eligibility that's coming down the tracks, it's very, very worrying. We, like most other charities, are very anxious about our financial position later in the year. We can access emergency funding, but I don't know an organization that's not facing a cliff edge from November. Um, and we're very stretched, so there's very high levels of need. Um, uh, and we're, you know, we're responding to really high levels of need, and yet we're really not quite sure how to, how to plan. But on the other hand, people, are, volunteers are coming forward in, in, in droves and are really keen to help. And you know, there's a real spirit, I think, of cooperation. Um, so it's a very, I think there's a very mixed picture in terms of infrastructure of people being able to respond. Um, but it, it's, it's a, I think it's a very, it's going to be a very different. <coughs> Um, Lovely. Thank you very much, Sarah. Um, thanks for, for giving us uh, uh, um, your thoughts there. That's, that's brilliant. Um, before I move on to, to David, just to say, um, because of timing, I think we're going to probably go on to about five past eight so that we get some questions in after, after David as well, if that's okay. But um, I'll pass you on now to, to David. Um, David Moriarty. Assistant Director of the Jesuit Refugee Service in Ireland and over to you David, thank you very much. Many thanks and I appreciate I'm the last uh, speaker so I'll try and be as succinct as possible and, and keep it in the 10 minutes. So very briefly firstly just to say thank you for the invitation and opportunity to speak to a uh, Church's uh, Refugee Network and obviously Churches Together and initially the invitation from Damien and Richard. What I want to try and talk about today is just how in Ireland, in the, in the national context here, the COVID-19 outbreak actually exposed some of the structural weaknesses in how the state accommodates asylum seekers. Um, now, although what I have to say isn't very pretty all the time, at the end of it, there is some hope, um, certainly in, in the coming weeks and months, that there might be an opportunity to, to radically change that structure. 
Um, but by way of context, it's important to note two anniversaries, as it were. The first is that we're 20 years in Ireland into the system of direct provision. And that's the system by which the state accommodates people seeking protection here. But since, since its inception, it's been the, the subject of criticism and critique, in particular around the length of time that people find themselves in that system and all the negative consequences associated. So this ranges from institutionalization, negative impacts on mental health and well-being, impact on child development and, and family breakdowns. But that's the system that is in operation um, here at the moment. The second anniversary is that yesterday, five years ago, there was a, a report published, the McMahon Report. And with a government-appointed working group, JRS Ireland served as a member, and that was tasked with trying to reform that system of direct provision. But although the report was accepted by government, over the last five years, we haven't seen the full implementation. It's been piecemeal and somewhat inconsistent. And that's critical in our understanding of, of the context that asylum seekers in Ireland now find themselves in, and how they find themselves in a worse position during COVID because of the lack of implementation there. The final, I suppose, contextual uh, note of relevance is that towards the end of 2018, that system of direct provision, that effectively became full. So the state had to have recourse to emergency accommodation, which is not as suitable. Um, it doesn't have the same orientation and reception supports, and it's much more costly than, than the system of direct provision, both in financial and in, and in human terms. But at the outbreak of, of COVID, there was essentially about 20% of the asylum-seeking population that is housed in Ireland living in that, in that environment. So I mentioned that I was going to focus on how the pandemic has exposed or shone a, a spotlight on some of the structural failings. So similar to the other speakers, we had the same context here in Ireland in terms of the public health guidance that we were receiving. It was all about staying at home, socially distanced, avoid those outside your, your immediate circle. Um, for vulnerable individuals, we had a term cocooning, which is the, is the self-isolating. But the reality is for the population in direct provision, for the asylum seekers who were living there, none of that was possible in the vast majority of cases. So we have overcrowding in some of the centres, particularly those accommodating single males. So social distancing when you have six individuals in a small room is out of the question. There is a lack of private living space. So for families who had a member of the household who was deemed vulnerable, there's no space for them to cocoon separately, but still within the confines of the, of the, of the family unit. There is an over-reliance on communal catering. So over half of the centres accommodating asylum seekers in Ireland still don't have any autonomy for the preparation of food. So we had queues and, and, and sitting and eating in communal settings. And then finally, obviously the nature of congregated settings just increases the risk of people who are already vulnerable by the nature of a pre-existing health condition or their age. And direct provision did not enable a person who was in such a category to have any opportunity to, to self-protect in, in any form. So what I suppose the state did in response, um, but didn't need to do or wouldn't have needed to, to have done if it had implemented the, the, the recommendations of the McMahon report, which I mentioned in full. But what it did in response was it undertook a thinning exercise. So it moved a few hundred, 300 individuals out of some of the more precarious living situations in centres and it moved them to new facilities. Now, while that sounds positive and it is good in its own right, it also posed significant challenges for those individuals. 
because the country's in lockdown. We're all being told to stay at home, not leave our community. And yet there's hundreds of individuals who have been forcibly displaced living in Ireland and they're being instructed that they're going to be moved halfway across the country to a new community, to a new centre, to somewhere that they've never been. So obviously that's going to give rise to, to huge distress and concern. Now, except it's nothing like uh, destitution and being without being without a roof over your head, being without access to basic facilities, to food and to essentials. But it's still hugely distressing for each and every one of those individuals involved. So JRS Ireland tried to act as that point of contact to accompany them through that process and ensure that wherever they arrived, they were linked in with the medical support and social welfare supports they needed. Um, I suppose, so. I should say that Immediately prior to the outbreak of COVID-19 and the imposition of, of restrictions, there was a general election here in Ireland and that was put on hold. So government formation didn't happen until the weekend. So we, so we had a number of weeks where there was a caretaker government. But the experience of asylum seekers and the experience of those who live in the system of direct provision in Ireland during COVID-19 actually did move up the agenda, thankfully. Now, it never reached the top of the agenda and it never will but it significantly influenced the government formation talks to the extent that people recognized something had to change, that this was the final straw. And thankfully, as part of those formation talks, our shop, the equivalent of the prime minister or first minister, came out and publicly acknowledged that the system, as a result of this recent experience, was simply not fit for purpose. And the program for government agreed over the weekend, and I suppose this is where the hope is, is that they said within the lifetime of the next government, the system will be abolished and it will be replaced with, with an alternative model. So that's positive as a statement, but obviously it's much harder uh, to do in practice and it's certainly much easier said than done. But to try and influence that dialogue and to try and essentially pandemic proof any future uh, system that will house accommodation or house asylum seekers and refugees in Ireland, uh, JRS Ireland developed a policy proposal, which I won't go into detail, but it's obviously can be circulated to participants after the call and it's available on our website. But it, it tries to offer a roadmap to how to achieve a system that will better accommodate those arriving seeking protection in Ireland. And the three key elements of it, which I'll just briefly mention and then, then stop in the interest of time, is to say that the first is an expedited long stair scheme. So that's a fancy way of saying that those longest in the system get priority and have their case expedited and concluded. And if that was done immediately, the numbers that would benefit if it was done for those over two years in the system, the numbers that would benefit uh, when added to those who already have status, by the end of the year, half of the direct provision system would be in a, in, a, in a situation where they could leave, which would dramatically create space for the necessary improvements to that system that could be done. The second aspect is to abandon what we have at the moment, which is a market-led procurement model for accommodation for asylum seekers. And it's resulted in centres being opened in remote locations which don't have adequate supports and services and suffered greatly during COVID-19 as a result. And we want to move to a local authority-led system, which is they're the equivalent of councils and boroughs. And this would enable us to have a fairer distribution around the country, but to house asylum seekers in towns which have the supports and services that were so uh, drastically lacking during, during the pandemic. And the final is just to say that there needs to be, obviously, a person-centred um, approach from the moment of arrival, which isn't policy in Ireland uh, at the moment. The integration does not begin at that point. At that point. And that uh, cannot happen again because what it led to was people living in isolated areas 
in, in rural communities without sufficient support, not knowing what to do, not knowing who to call, and just watching everyone else around them struggle with a pandemic, but they themselves were struggling worse. Thank you very much, David. Um, the, um, oh, for some reason my video stopped. Oh. Uh, start my video, there we are. Um, don't know what happened there, technology playing, uh, <laughs> playing around. But um, going on from what David was saying there, I might come straight back to David uh, with um, probably one question that... Um, has struck me um, from listening to, to you all this evening. Um, it's in, in, in two parts. Um, what would be the main learning point that you will take away from this time um, uh, that we need to address going forward? That uh, And then if we do get a second, uh, second wave, what do we do differently in that second wave as opposed to, as because we're, coming out of lockdown now, if we had to lock down or do something similar again, what would we do? So if I come back to, to David first, and then uh, we're going in, in reverse um, to the way we spoke, if that's okay. David? Certainly, well, I suppose the accommodation model that we have here in Ireland currently just isn't fit for purpose in general, but certainly during a pandemic, it enhances the risk of people and it enhances their exposure to, to, to COVID-19 or other viruses. So the model of accommodation for protection applicants, where, whether it be in Ireland or elsewhere, needs to be drastically different. It needs to be smaller, more community-based, and it needs to be led by a different idea than, than what's available. It should more be led by what is suitable. Okay, uh, Sarah? Oh, you're on mute, Sarah. Sorry, I'm back. Hello. Um, I'm curious about your question as to whether what we is in this context, but um, I'm we, uh, as in as in England, um, you know, or, or but as in what we the want the government to do, I guess. Yes. What, yeah. Uh, what, what, okay. Yeah. Um, well, I think <laughs> the learning it for me, or what I hope they will have learned. Um, is that things they think they have to do that are an integral part of the immigration system that campaigners and organisations and all sane people have been telling them they don't need to do and are a terrible idea for a long time, they could stop because in the blink of an eye, they stopped the need for reporting. They stopped the need to go and um, make submissions to Liverpool in person. They emptied out the detention system and they housed destitute asylum seekers. So I think what this proves really is that inhumanity is a choice it is not a necessary part of the immigration system. Okay, thank you. Um, so if we then go to, to Emma. Um, I think the, really the responsibility of those that take on um, essentially commercial contracts, their duty to also safeguard those that, that they are looking after. So it appears that there was a complete lack of of any kind of risk assessment in regard to individuals being moved into hotels. And so these, these contracts that these large commercial companies put in for and, and essentially underbid everybody else, that there's a massive human um, element to it that, that they need to make sure that they can also um, take responsibility for. So I hope that the way that um, the bids are assessed and the way that these companies' ability to actually fulfil the contracts, I'm hoping that that will be looked at 
um, rather than just who's offering the cheapest service. And Erica? Um, I'd agree with um, what, what the previous um, presenters have said and I think I'd add from the multi-agency calls that we've had where we've kept an action log and that's rolled forward week after week after well yeah we, we were having twice weekly uh, multi-agency calls and it seemed to me it took an awful long time to get any sort of resolution on the question on the issue of Aspen cards and could they be used online and you know um, could they be more flexible to allow people to actually buy what they needed and there's been huge issues around issuing sim sim cards and making sure that mobile data was available and if asylum seekers were in hotels that Wi-Fi was available and it just felt as if it was taking a long time to get anything organised. It was still an open action for many, many meetings. And I think we have to be a lot more organised in that when, as I think, the second wave happens. You know, we need to have learned from the hardships and to put better support in place immediately. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, and, and just looking at a, a, a few of the questions that have come in from, from the people out, out there in, uh, uh, and one of the questions is, um, do we think that the lack of support in temporary accommodation is causing a tragic, the tragic incidences that we've heard about in the news? Um, maybe if we go, go to Emma uh, with, with Glasgow in, in mind, do we yeah. think that that, that uh, goes first and then maybe um, Sarah, Erica and David? It's quite a difficult question to answer. I mean, there still was support going into the accommodation. Um, the housing officers were there. The Asylum Health Bridging Team were going in. Some of the other agencies, we, we haven't been um, in person going, going in, but some of the other agencies were managing to maintain contact with people in that accommodation. Um, I think it'll be very hard to pinpoint just one thing. Um, and I think we need to wait until there is some sort of proper inquiry without sort of trying to prejudge that. I think it was the fact that as people have been describing it as hotel detention and, and to be detaining anybody um, who has been through what the vast majority of these folks have been through it takes a huge toll, whether you are detained in immigration removal centre or whether you are detained inside what might have looked like a reasonable hotel. Um, the lack of freedom and the lack of, of ability to, to assert yourself as an individual um, has, has taken a huge toll. But that's, you know, I think we will hopefully see um, a little bit more in terms of research as to, to what it actually has been that has, has caused such awful harm. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't remember who I said that. Was it Sarah next? Or, yeah, if we go to yeah. Sarah. I'm not sure I've got an awful lot more to add for what Emma mm. said, actually. I think. Um, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, either uh, of the other two, Erica or, or David, would say anything on that question? No, I don't think there is a lot to, to add because I think every asylum seeker is an individual. Um, you can't make generalisations without having looked at the situation more closely. But we're certainly going to be discussing and looking at all the safety and, and support that accommodation uh, providers have in place in Wales. Um, hoping it's not too late, you know. Yeah. David, anything from an Irish perspective? Or? 
No, look, obviously it, it, it's a tragic incident. Um, I think it's clear if you don't have support, regardless of the unique resilience of, of, of asylum seekers and refugees, as mentioned, everyone is different. But if you don't have support, some people are going to face mm-hmm. real struggles. Okay. Um, so um, just, a, just a final question then from, because this is the Church's Refugee Network, um, what more can the churches and uh, individual churches, denominations do as a, as a whole in, in, your, um, in your countries? Um, what can they do to, to help the situation? And um, or are there any insights that you've got that, uh, that, we, could, um, that we could learn from? Uh, maybe if we go to, to Sarah first this time. I'd really like to see the churches speak up very clearly on lifting the restrictions um, on access to public services around NRPF. Um, I, I mean, there's, you know, we're facing an emergency and there needs to be leadership from churches at every level. So I, I think asking for help with advocacy is, is really critical at this point. And the second thing I would say is given the homelessness crisis that we anticipate, we're, and um, in common with many other organisations who host, are looking at safe ways to reopen our hosting schemes. And um, you know, if, if, you, if you're in a large property um, uh, and you know, we know that sometimes vicarages and presbyteries and all the rest of it are quite large, um, people may know people in their parishes, um, we'd really, really like your help. Erica? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with, with all of that that Sarah said, really. It's, um, if I think of Wales, I think churches can especially add to a sense of community, that sense of support um, that helps a family or an individual feel less alone, whether that's within accommodation or whether that is just within a safe meeting space when they can open up again. Um, it's it's that sense of welcome and acceptance that I think churches should be making sure is felt in communities. Thank you very much. Uh, David? I think uh, similar to what Sarah mentioned about um, and at advocacy level that the church has a, has a strong voice and it should use it, but also at the community level, we, we've seen a, a small but a very pointed rise in, in uh, far-right rhetoric and racism, and that needs to be stamped out in the community and, and churches can lead on that. And, and Emma, finally. Yeah, I don't think I've got much to add to the <laughs> other folks. Um, I think a lot of churches are already doing a, a tremendous amount. Um, and and just, yeah, be prepared to speak, be prepared to, to really adopt these folks and um, and help them to put, to, 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 to yeah, to, to advocate for them and, and help them to to express themselves um, mm. to those that, that, that need to listen. Well, thank you ever so much. I've, uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to you all uh, this evening. And I'm sure everybody listening at home has, uh, has thoroughly enjoyed um, getting to grips with, uh, with some of uh, the very uh, important issues that are, that are out there uh, within um, refugee and uh, asylum seeker communities. And, uh, uh, and I, I'd encourage you all to, to keep up the excellent work that, that you are doing. Um, so I'd like to thank everybody for, for coming uh, this evening and, and listening to this very stimulating uh, conversation. Um, I'd also like to thank all the people that have sent in 
uh, questions and uh, sorry if we haven't got around to, to answering all those questions uh, but I'm sure um, they will uh, we'll be able to, to try and capture those and answer them if we can. Um, so on, on behalf of myself, uh, Peredi Rowan Griffiths and um, uh, CTBI and the Church's Refugee Network, Diolch uh, Iawn and Nosta, thank you very much and good evening. Diolch Truth to Power podcast is produced by Churches Together in Britain and Ireland. The music is by Nikolai Heidlis, used under a Creative Commons licence.